0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the Gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the Gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people perfect in Him. See, we all survived Snowmageddon. With Chris on that, I like snow, but I'm of the opinion that if it's going to snow, I want it to snow. I don't, I don't want two inches. I want two feet. I want it to be. I want actually would love to see this area get two feet of snow. I have said that for years. I would love to see the mayhem that ensued from two feet of snow. I think that would be hilarious to watch. So uh, maybe next time we'll get it. <clears throat> Before we begin this morning, let me alert you to the fact that this is going to be. One of my two-part sermons, meaning uh, I have written one really, really, really long sermon, and I've broken it in half. So we're going to do the first half this week. Second half next week means if you're here today, you're pretty much committed to coming back next Sunday no matter what now, so you can hear the end of this as the two halves go together. When we get to the halfway point, I will pretty much just stop this almost abruptly, Um, but hopefully it'll make sense and the Lord will use it as we look at this topic this morning. We're going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look here at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and read your word. Thank you for giving us your word, for not leaving us to wonder about who you are or what you want for us or from us. But you have given us your word so that we might know you, might know your thoughts, might know your heart, might know your desires, might know how to live then in relation to those things. And I pray as we gather now and take these next minutes to look at your word, that your spirit will be active in our hearts helping us see these things. Lord, it is very easy, very easy for us to read your word, especially for those of us in this room who have grown up in Christianity. It's very easy for us to read these things and to not think very deeply about them, to just assume that we we understand, to assume that we know when we don't. And I pray, Lord, that you will use our time together both this Sunday and next Sunday to cause us to to stop and examine some things that are at the very heart of our salvation in a way that perhaps some of us haven't done before. And I pray that through that you will give us confidence or convict us, whatever the case may be, of the truth of the gospel and challenge us with those things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you would think that... having had to cancel our services last Sunday due to the snow, that I would have had a pretty light uh, week from a sermon prep perspective, that is. But in fact, I think having this extra week to think about this message wasn't necessarily a good thing. I think it may have actually made it a little bit harder. As I was preparing to preach last Sunday, the message I was going to preach last Sunday, I was planning to draw to a conclusion this little mini-series, I guess we could call it, on these foundation stones that we've been looking at here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. And the reason I have stayed with this mini series for so long is because I'm afraid that there are a number of really big, important issues that Paul is assuming here in this text that very many people, many Christians, maybe even some of you here in this room, have never thought very deeply about. And as I've said that uh, over the last few weeks, I hope you know I've never meant that uh, to be offensive in any way. I'm not calling anyone dumb. I'm just trying to be realistic with the situation. My premise has been all along that I think in our day and age, not just in the world at large, but even within the church, there is a great deal of biblical illiteracy. People just don't know a lot of things. They don't really understand the story of Scripture. They don't really understand the Old Testament, its history, its characters. Uh, They don't understand the connection between where we are today and what we read in the Old Testament. I mean, just as a, a quick little aside, a case in point, you do realize, do you not, that what we think of today as Christianity could, in a sense, be called just true Judaism, Think about that just for a moment. The Jews were supposed to be waiting for and hoping for the coming of the Messiah, right? The coming of the kingdom of God. That was everything that the Old Testament was pointing to and and leading them to. And then here comes Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And he is the fulfillment of all of the things that they were supposed to be hoping for and looking for and desiring. And yet, what do they do? They, They reject him. He's not the kind of Messiah they want him to be, and the kingdom he offers them is not the kind of kingdom they want. And so they, many of them at least, reject him and his kingdom. They turn their back on him. But in the goodness and kindness of God's eternal plan, what does he do? He offers that same Messiah and that same kingdom to the entire world, not just to the nation of Israel. So all of us Gentiles now can be adopted as sons and daughters through Christ. And so what we think of as Christianity then is really just the fulfillment, the continuation of all that we see and read in the Old Testament. In that sense, that's why I'm using this, and it's not 100% right, but hopefully you get the idea. It's the continuation of what Judaism was supposed to be, but, but failed to become. And a lot of people just don't understand these kinds of ideas. They don't they don't know who God truly is. They don't understand what God wants from them. They don't understand who even they are in relation to God. They don't understand what the church is. They don't understand a lot of the biblical and theological terms that we see in the scriptures. And I could keep going, but you get the point. And this is this is what I've been trying to address. But as I've been doing this over these past few weeks, I have been torn along the way. And having these this extra week, just even to think about this particular message, has Uh, help me crystallize that a little bit more. For example, I've been torn by the fact that there is probably no end to the number of things I could cover as foundation stones that would genuinely be helpful for us. I mean, just on Tuesday of this past week, I was sitting at my desk. I bet I sat there for an hour or two just churning through ideas. I probably had six or eight very specific ideas that, while all related, could clearly easily be individual foundation stone sermons in and of themselves, and they would all be helpful for us. However, secondly, I was torn by the fact that I'm supposed to be preaching through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and at some point here, I'd like to get back to that. Uh, Instead of doing these other sermons, which have not been bad, just I, I want to be here in the text more than I want to be doing other things, and that's been weighing on me. Third, I've had a real concern that we've been losing the forest for the trees. Again, not that what we've been doing is bad. I just I don't want us to lose sight of what we're aiming at, and so with all of these things bouncing around inside the old noggin this week, I've decided to make a change to this sermon. If I had preached this last week, it'd be a little bit different, but with the extra week, I've made, I've tinkered with it some, I hope it's a little bit better. This is still going to be our last foundation stone sermon. There are several more things that I would like to cover with you, but I think we're going to get to some of those uh, as we go, particularly getting into chapter three, and so I'll forego those for now. But there is one final topic that I really, really feel burdened to cover with you, and so I'm going to do it because Paul just assumes it and doesn't really explain it, and I want to make sure that it is clear. And it has to do with the nature of genuine saving faith. Of genuine saving faith. Now, I raised this as a question for us a few weeks ago now. It was the Sunday before Christmas, to be exact. What exactly is the nature of true saving faith. And since it's been so long, let me just reset the question, really this whole thing we've been doing here over these last few weeks for us so we understand why we're asking this this morning. Remember that the larger context here is Paul recounting a story to us about a confrontation that he had with Peter when Peter came to visit him in Antioch. Peter had come for a visit, and while he is there, he had been in the practice of eating with his Gentile brothers, which when we hear that today doesn't sound so weird to us because we're like, what's the big deal? But for a good, faithful Jew in Peter's day and Paul's day, they didn't eat with, talk with, walk with, uh, do anything with Gentiles any more than they absolutely had to in order to live their life. And this wasn't just a religious thing. I don't know how you process that kind of statement. It's not just a religious thing for them. It's a, it's a cultural thing. It's a social thing. It's a racial thing. It's an, it's an everything for them. Good Jews in that day just didn't cross this line. But the coming of the Messiah changes all of that. And now all of a sudden those dividing walls have been broken and and Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. And we'll get to that a little bit more in chapter three. And, And so Peter's decision to eat with his Gentile brothers is a beautiful, accurate, visual outworking or ramification of the gospel itself. Unfortunately, though, one day a group of almost certainly believing Jews from James show up there in Antioch. And when they show up, how does Peter respond? Peter now becomes afraid of the unbelieving Jews living there in that city. And you go, why? Well, I don't know for sure. My, if I had to guess, if I had to make up a scenario, I would say that we know Peter had left Jerusalem after he, his life had been threatened. Remember that in the book of Acts? We looked at that a few weeks back. And so he goes somewhere, very likely Antioch. And when he gets there, if your life has been threatened, maybe you might feel the same way. Maybe you don't want to announce who you are right off the bat. So it's possible he's there incognito and all's going fine and no one really knows who he is, apart from the, the believers in that city. Until one day, this group from James shows up and they're in the marketplace, like, we're looking for, for Peter, the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's yay tall, looks like this. Has anybody seen him? And they're like, oh. Now we know who that is. And all of a sudden now he's under a level of scrutiny that he wasn't wasn't under before. Is that what happened? I don't know. Whatever the case is, something about their arrival makes him afraid. He's now afraid of the unbelieving Jews in town. And out of fear, he does the wrong thing. He separates himself from his Gentile brothers. And again, kind of like with the eating with them part, we're like, well, what's the big deal? What? Why is that so significant? Well, it's so significant because in that setting, it calls into question everything about the gospel itself. As I have explained in the past, I would call it a denial of the gospel because Peter is, in doing this, He's indicating that the Gentiles need to keep the Old Testament law, that those dividing walls are are still up, and that everything that both he and Paul have been preaching about the gospel of grace is untrue. You say, wow, that's a lot to get (laughs) out of that one choice. Yeah, I know it is, but I think that's what is going on here. And that's why Paul publicly confronts Peter over this. That's how big of a deal this is. And that confrontation starts in verse 14 when he says to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is what your choice is communicating to them, Peter. And then from there, verses 15 to 21 are really just an extended explanation of that confrontation, of what happened and why Paul feels the need to confront him. And this is where we've been for these past few weeks. This is where we've been looking at these foundation stones. The first one we looked at was here in verse 15, when he draws this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And our first foundation stone was that Jews had a real privileged position when it came to knowing and living in relationship with the one true God, and Gentiles did not. Remember that? It was just that simple. He he draws that distinction here. There's Jews and there's Gentile sinners. And this is a right distinction, however. The second foundation stone was that neither one's privileged position nor one's disadvantaged position helped or hurt you one way or the other when it came to being made right with God. God wasn't looking at your DNA. God wasn't looking at your pedigree. What was he looking at? Well, something other than that, which of course led us then to the third foundation stone here in verse 16, which was as... Jordan reminded us a few moments ago, a two-week examination of the word justified or justification. What is justification? It is a legal term that means to be declared righteous, to be made right with, to be declared not guilty. It assumes that God views us as being guilty of something, that something being sin. And it assumes that we are not in a right relationship with God, but that God is willing to declare us not guilty, even though we clearly are guilty. And this is what has led us now to this fourth and final foundation stone. Because as I was explaining justification the other week, I took a few moments to remind us that in the New Testament, you often see the New Testament writers look at the issue of justification from one of three perspectives. They'll do a little more than that, but these are the three big ones. They'll look at it from the perspective of grace, justification by grace. They'll look at it from the perspective of Christ, justification by or through Christ. And they will look at it from the perspective of faith. And of course, that's what we see here in verse 16. Paul in this verse is focused on this idea That we are justified by faith, not by the works of the law. What law, class? Remember this? It's the Old Testament law. The law of Moses, the Torah, those 613 commandments of the Old Testament, all the thou shalt's and thou shalt not's and everything in between. Paul says we cannot be justified, declared righteous, made not guilty before God by keeping those laws. Why? He'll explain that later. Rather, he says the way we can be justified, the only way we can be justified is through believing in Christ, through faith in Christ. And this is our final foundation stone, because I want to ask the question, what exactly does that mean? If you've grown up in American Christianity at all, if you've grown up in American culture at all, you probably are familiar with the idea that in order to be saved, we have to have faith, we have to believe in Christ, this kind of terminology, but what exactly does that mean? And if you will indulge me for a moment, I want to lay out the issue or the problem, or the reason why I'm asking this question this way with a couple of different biblical examples that I think will draw the issue out to the forefront for us. Now, both of these things I've shared with us in the past to some extent or another, but I'm going to put them together today. So if some of this sounds familiar to some of you, uh, give me a pass and let's just look at what it has to say. I'll give you two examples. Here's the first one. Example number one is what I have called before the scariest passage in the New Testament. That's just my designation. You won't find that at the heading in your Bible there anywhere. It's just mine. This is Jesus, Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. He says to the crowds, we'll pick up here in verse six or 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, just quickly pause and recognize that he is describing, in this particular sentence, he is describing people who, on the outside, pretend to be believers. This is a purposeful decision on their part. They're they're putting on a mask. They're putting on a facade. They want to deceive you. And so even though they look like sheep, they're not... They're not really sheep. They are really wolves. They are doing this purposely. This is why Jesus calls them false prophets. And so he gives us a way to recognize these kinds of people. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Well, what does he mean by that? He's talking about their life. You can look at the fruit of their life and determine whether or not they are a sheep or a wolf. And if that idea of looking at their fruits is kind of lost to you, he turns to nature as an easy example. He goes, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? I mean, I grew up in North Carolina. We go playing in the woods, and the woods in Carolina are filled with thorn bushes. I never once saw any grapes on them, okay? We would have eaten them had we found them, but we never once found them, okay? What, what do thorn bushes produce? Thorns. Not a trick question. Okay, you're good, all right? Well, nor, he says, do you get figs from thistles? What do thistles produce? Thistles. Okay, it's again, not a difficult question. So he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree can't bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Okay, that's, that's pretty simple, right? It's a setup. Wolves and sheep's clothing, people trying to intentionally deceive believers. He says, listen, you've got a way to, to identify them it's their fruit. Just simply look at their fruit. Bad trees don't make good fruit. Good trees don't make bad fruit. Look at their fruit and you'll know. Now, let's switch gears and let's think about a different group since we're on the subject of false disciples anyway, because clearly these people are false disciples. They're purposefully, intentionally false disciples. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I just want you to stop and really think about that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that not a scary comment just in and of itself? Just to think that there will be people who will say to Jesus someday, Lord, Lord, that crying. He was like, no, no. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, see, now the situation seems a little different than the first one with the false prophets. Now we seem to be dealing with a group who knew who Jesus was. They call him Lord, Lord. You you see that twice. And and their fruits on top of it would seemingly be good ones. They prophesy in his name and they're casting out demons in his name and doing many mighty works in his name. We're talking miracles, which if I could give you a little side comment, just remember that not everyone who does miracles in the name of Jesus really represents Jesus, but that's a sermon probably for another day. These fruits, if we are the judge and jury, right, and they're sitting in the middle and we're surrounding them just looking at their lives, examining, we would see all of this stuff and we would be convinced, would we not, that these people are believers. And yet, Jesus says to them here, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What? Many? Yeah. How could these people be, be so self-deceived to think that they were going to enter the kingdom of God just simply to be turned away like this? Is, that, is it just me or is that troubling to you to think about this? Hold that for a moment. Example number two. Example number two is James's comments on the relationship between faith and faith. And fruit in James chapter 2. Now, this passage has troubled people in the past, but it shouldn't trouble us, if you properly understand it, if you see what's going on here, it's very simple and very clear. James is actually dealing with the very same issue that Jesus is in Matthew chapter 7, that of false converts, false disciples. He's just doing it from a different perspective with a slightly different issue at stake here. And so that's that's the distinction between the two. His issue are people who claim to believe in Christ, but there is absolutely no evidence to back that up. There is no fruit whatsoever. So let's see what, what he has to say here. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, right? Do you see the specific situation there? You know, this is a person who claims to believe in Jesus, but they are not showing the fruit of belief. That's what he means by works here. It's not the same as works of the law in Galatians 2. He's talking about fruit or evidence. There's nothing that's coming out of their faith that, that shows that that faith is genuine. And so he asks, can that kind of faith save him? He doesn't say they don't really have faith. He's actually assuming that they have faith. They have a kind of faith, some kind of faith. But is that the kind of faith that saves people and so to illustrate he gives us an example he says if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that can, can you picture the scenario? It's cold outside and someone comes knocking on your door. It's a brother or sister in Christ. And, and even though it's like 30 degrees, they're in a t-shirt, shorts, and, and flip-flops, which isn't that unusual for Virginia Beach. But in this case, we'll pretend it is. And they're clearly starving. They're gaunt, And, and you see them. And instantly, they're shivering. They're cold. They're blue. And you, you get the fact, hey, this person is freezing. This person is starving. You you accept the information, you believe it, you identify the problem, you even know the right things to say back to them. Oh, be warmed, be filled, and then you close the door. And nothing changes. Nothing happens. He goes, great words, you've correctly identified the problem, you you accept it, You, you acknowledge it, but in the scenario that's presented to us, That's all that happens. It's just words. The person goes out cold and hungry. And so he asks, what good is that? What good is it to recognize truth, to say all the right things, but to have nothing actually change? What good is that? The cold, hungry person, still cold and hungry. What good was your recognition, acceptance, and even profession of truth in this scenario? It has no value. It is worthless, verse 17, so also then faith by itself, if it does not have works, if it doesn't have fruit, if something doesn't come out of that, is dead. If all you have, James says, is a recognition, acceptance, and profession of the truth of Christ, but nothing actually changes, then your faith is dead faith. You have worthless faith. Notice again, he still doesn't deny that you have some kind of faith, right? you got some going on inside your mind or heart. But whatever you have, it's doing you no good. Hold on, though. Because someone might say that you have faith and I have works, as if these two things are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. They don't go together and you can separate them. Uh, not quite. No, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. James responds to them by saying, okay, then show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You, you can't separate these two issues. Real faith always produces fruit. Real faith always produces results, changes of some sort in someone's life. So if you're just saying you have faith but nothing's changed, <laughs> you can't show it. But I, I can show you the fruit I can show you the results and thus prove that my faith is real. It's it's really by the same way that Jesus gave us in Matthew 7, by being able to look at the fruit and recognizing that you do indeed believe. And now James drops the final bomb on this debate. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. And, And to say here that you believe that God is one is a reference to monotheism which in, in, in James' day and Peter's day and Paul's day would have been like one of the, the central tenets of good theology for, well, anyone, okay? Because most people in their day didn't believe in monotheism. They thought there was a whole plethora of gods out there and you could pray to this god or that god or whatever and get what you wanted. So pretty much the only people who believed in one god were Jews and Christians. That's basically true enough for the moment. So he says, listen, you're a monotheist, great, that is excellent theology. You do very well to believe like that. But you want to know who else believes that? Satan. The demons also believe that same truth. And it doesn't lead them to any kind of salvation. It only leads them to shudder in fear. Folks, I don't know if you realize this, but there's probably no one in creation outside of God and the angels perhaps that has better theology than satan and the demons if satan opened a seminary we should all attend okay maybe not but you get the point right like he gets it he knows things that nobody here knows he knows things i don't know he's got better faith if you want to call it that in that sense than anyone in this room and yet none of that helps him none of that leads them to salvation All that does is it leads them to fear, to shudder. Now, this is the problem. And this is where we're going to leave off, actually, and pause and pick back up next Sunday. Because what we've seen here are two examples of false converts. One in Matthew 7 and one in James 2. In both cases, the person seems to believe, no pun intended there, that they have faith in Christ. Both Matthew 7 and James 2. In one case, there seems to be fruit, which confuses us, right? Because we look at that and we're like, how can there be fruit? Didn't Jesus say we'd recognize them by their fruit? Well, look at their fruit. They seem to be believers. Yeah, recognize Jesus also said or gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's like sometimes they're going to grow up together and you're not going to know until the end. You won't be able to distinguish. You're going to be fooled by which is which up until the last moment. So so I get that in the James example. There's no fruit. So that one's maybe a little bit easier for us to tell. The point is, sometimes we just don't know. But that's not the part that stands out to me the most here. The part that stands out to me the most here is, in either case, Matthew 7 or James 2, why isn't their faith sufficient to save them? They both had faith. Matthew 7, they got faith. They got faith throughout doing miracles in the name of Jesus. In James 2, they've got faith. James never denies it. But in both cases, the faith they have, whatever kind of faith they have, it's not the kind that is sufficient to save them. And so what has gone wrong here? How, how could they be so self-deceived? It brings us back to that question that I asked you a few weeks ago. And the specific question I asked was this, what kind of faith saves us? And I said at the time, so some of you might be surprised to think that there are more than one kind of faith. But clearly, clearly there are. There's types of faith we're seeing here in these two passages that don't lead to salvation. So, so what kind of faith saves us? What What does the word faith even truly mean? And when Paul says here in Galatians that we are justified by faith, what exactly is he suggesting? This is is no small question, right? (laughs) This is no small question for us. Clearly, some types of faith do not save us. And so what exactly is God looking for in our faith? And this is where I'm going to go against my better judgment, which is another result of having that extra week to think about this. And I'm going to leave us on a cliffhanger. Because my goal here is not to to make us doubt or fear. um, But I do want you to go out and question. I want you to go home this week and I want you to wrestle with this question of what kind of faith saves us. And I will give you one help. It is the same help I gave you a few weeks ago when I asked you this question. I want you to go home as you're wrestling through this, thinking through this, and I want you to read Romans 4. Just one chapter, Romans 4. And I want you to pay very careful attention to what Paul says about the faith of Abraham in that passage. Think deeply about it. Consider who Abraham is. Consider his context, the circumstances, the situation. Think deeply about that. And then let's come together next Sunday to answer these questions together from God's word. Will you bow your head with me? Father, I... I know that for me, from my heart, this has been one of those questions that you used in my own past to give me a confidence in the gospel that I did not have before. My hope and desire through this is for everyone who's listening to have that same confidence. But I recognize that maybe not everyone in the room is in the same place. There could be people in here who are unbelievers, and they know it. They they know they're unbelievers. And maybe they've grown up hearing Christians talk about having faith in Christ and believing in Jesus, but they don't have any idea what that means. Spirit, will you take these questions and trouble them? With the, don't, don't let them rest this week. Make them wrestle and, and ask and wonder and, and, and have to think and pray and search and trouble them, Lord. That's all I know how to ask until they understand what faith truly is. For those in here who who would profess faith in you, my hope, my desire, my assumption is that the vast, vast majority, I pray, are genuine believers. But I also recognize what you said in Matthew 7. There will be many who say to you one day, Lord, Lord, and they won't be entering. So I don't know. I hope this isn't the case. But if there is anyone in this room who claims faith in you, but is not a genuine believer, is self-deceived. Trouble them, please, this week. Make them wrestle through this question, to think through it deeply, to ask themselves hard questions. Is there fruit in their life? Is that what's motivating that fruit? Is I don't know. I don't know what the situation is, so I don't know what to ask for them. But trouble them as well, until they find their rest and their comfort in you. But I hope this is for the majority of us in here. For those of us who are genuine believers, may this exercise. Lead us to a confidence in the gospel that we have not experienced before in our life to be rested 100% on you, Christ, knowing that our salvation is tied to you and you alone. And may this time and the study and these questions and the problems and some of the uncomfortableness even perhaps drive us to you in humility in a way maybe we haven't, we haven't done in a while. As so we give all these things to you and we ask... Your help and your blessing on it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.